Welcome to episode 189 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Three years ago, the Corporate Nights magazine ran an op-ed titled, Canada's Oil Sands Are Best Positioned to Lead the Energy Transformation. And it was authored by Suncor CEO Mark Little and Laura Kilcrease, uh, CEO of Alberta Innovates. And what they argued at that time was that the oil sands generated enough cash flow, enough, it was involved in uh, oil and gas research, technical research, technology development, that it was a natural leader to, to be at the forefront of the energy transition uh, in Canada, but certainly in, El in Alberta. Well, fast forward three years, and we have C a new CEO at Suncor, and things are not going quite according to plan. Uh, Suncor has shifted gears, and basically, uh, as Max Fawcett of the National Observer uh, said in his column today, Suncor waves the white flag on climate change. So I'm going to talk to Max about that. Max, welcome to the interview. Markham, uh, thanks for having me on. Well, look, you know, this is a really hard one for me because I've been in Suncor's corner for a long time, as you know. And and I thought, you know, four or five years ago, six years ago, that the oil sands companies were getting it on climate change. They talked about being having to be cost and carbon competitive, you know, uh, some point in the future. And that emissions reduction was high on their list of priorities. And that has turned out to be not true. And I have to tell you that I'm I'm kind of disappointed. Uh, I thought that there was an opportunity here that for for them to do exactly what Little said in his op-ed, which is to take the lead, demonstrate leadership. And they've done the opposite of that. They've all retreated into this old model uh, where uh, shareholder returns, lowering costs, there's a whole bunch of priorities, but lowering emissions and being leaders in the energy transition is now well down the priority list. So that's my take on it. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. But can you give us an inter, uh, sort of an overview of your column, please? Sure. So I I was alerted to uh, a, a press release that Suncor sent out the other day in advance of their second quarter results, where they announced a, a shuffling of their executive team. Uh, it was someone who uh, works at Suncor and, and believes in the importance of the energy transition and making that organization viable in the future. And they said, look at what they did with the role of chief sustainability officer. So Suncor, a couple of years ago, appointed Martha Hall Finley, formerly of the Canada West Foundation, to be their chief sustainability officer. They later bumped her up to, I think it was chief climate officer, which was the first person with that title uh, in the Canadian oil and gas industry, um, Martha had to had to leave the organization recently just because of some personal issues, some health issues. I believe she had cancer, which is obviously very unfortunate. And so they they moved Arlene Strom, who was a uh, a well-known name in that organization in the sustainability space, into the job. And she's retiring at the end of this year. And lo and behold, they're not replacing her. They're not filling that role. They are eliminating that role. And you know, the, the person that, that kind of tipped me off to this basically said, like, you know, what does this say about the organization? And I think it says a lot. It says that their new CEO, Rich Kruger, who they, you know, formerly of Imperial, you know, formerly of ExxonMobil, not someone who you would describe as being uh, passionate about climate policy, 
um, you know, they brought him in to deliver shareholder returns, to increase profits, to be really hard-headed about that stuff. And I think eliminating that role is part of his worldview. You know, he on the conference call, he basically said that Suncor had paid too much attention to the energy transition in recent years, and now it was time to get back to brass tacks. So, you know, as I said in my call, look, that's a choice they can make. They're a business. They absolutely can and should prioritize shareholder returns. I suppose the question I would ask is, whose returns and which shareholders, right? Uh, is it today's shareholders or is it tomorrow's? And I think the decision that Suncor is making will probably be good for people who own Suncor shares over the next little while. I think it'll be very bad for the organization over the longer term, uh, for people who intend to hold their shares uh, you know, for 5, 10, 15 years, because I just think this puts the organization on a path uh, that is completely at odds with where the world is going right now. Um, you know, I think the, the commitment, you know, and I'm, I'm like you, I was one of those people who defended Suncor to, you know, people who are, or are sort of, you know, bigger critics of the industry than even I am. Uh, I said, look, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their best. They're trying to, to, to turn the Titanic. It takes time, be patient. And yeah, I, you know, I kind of have a little bit of egg on my face because the Titanic is not for turning apparently. Um, you know, I think they, some people in that organization, uh, even the former CEO definitely believed that they needed to be carbon competitive when prices were lower, when the outlook for the oil and gas industry was a little less, I think, bullish. But, you know, over the last year, year and a half, prices have gone crazy. They've made record profits. And I think the greed has kind of overtaken. And, and the, you know, now I think the, the the people in that organization, certainly the leadership, they just want to make money and to hell with the consequences, to hell with the future. If we're going to unpack that. and But before we do, you brought up, uh, well, you, you know, you mentioned this person who had contacted you anonymously. And it, that immediately reminded me of a couple of conversations I've had over the last day and a half about Suncor with people whom I can't identify either. And this is a problem reporting in the industry. Because uh, I'm sure, uh, just like you, uh, you know, I get I get contacted by people who want to speak out, they're in positions of, of responsibility. They're either middle management or, or higher. So they are in positions to know, and they simply can't speak on the record because, and sometimes they can't even speak on background because whatever they say would identify them. And so the, the critics within the industry have to keep quiet, otherwise they'll lose their jobs. I mean, their career prospects would be ruined uh, if, you know, because there's such a, there's so much emphasis in this industry on sticking to the narrative, being a team player, collegial atmosphere, and it kind of drives me nuts. But I, I had a former executive on a company that on from uh, one of the oil sands companies who said, and I quote, oil sands emissions reductions is BS. It's just, and the implication is that it's just greenwashing and there's really nothing to it. And uh, anyway, I, I find that frustrating. I wanted to make that point is that very often as journalists, we want people on the record. This talking about what people said off the record or on background is is frustrating for us. And I just thought I'd point that out. Yeah, I, I experienced the same phenomenon. Uh, you know, I think people get a very uh, incomplete picture of what people in the industry actually think about these things because we always hear the voices that are, you know, the loud, like, 
anti-Trudeau climate change is, is not something we need to do as much about. We're only 2% of the emissions globally, blah, 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 all the talking points. And all the people in those organizations who, who think differently are incapable of speaking. And like you say, they're even at, you know, executive or, or senior management levels. Uh, these are not people who just walked in the front door the other day, but they can't speak out unless they have made peace with the fact that they will not advance in that organization. Um, and I think that gives the public a, a, a picture of sort of unanimity that, that simply isn't true or accurate. But, you know, the, these companies, certainly the leadership at them, feel like they are under attack. They feel like they are the victims. And I think they, you know, they get into this bunker mentality. Um, it doesn't do the industry or the companies any favors over the longer term. I mean, when you shut out critical voices, when you constrain the conversation, you tend to get blindsided by things you can't or won't see. And this is this is a recurring pattern in the oil and gas industry. It's been happening for years now. Um, but in some respects, it's only getting worse. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, let's talk about Suncor specifically because um, this is a company that of the oil sands, the big six, uh, it is the only one that actually had committed to a concrete reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Now, the Pathways Alliance, which is the industry association that now represents the uh, represents the oil sands producers, and one of these days we should have a uh, we'll do a podcast interview about why the oil sands producers left the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, otherwise known as CAP. <laughs> That's an interesting conversation, but not not for today. Anyway, Pathways Alliance, uh, they were talking about 22 megatons per year reduction by 2030. Most of it to come from carbon capture, utilization, and storage, but only if the federal government basically paid for most of it and and cleared the way some regulatory, cleared up some regulatory issues. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen on the timeframe that they needed. So Suncor kind of stood alone as the company that said, we uh, currently emit 29 megatons per year, and we're going to reduce that to 19 megatons per year by, by 2030. And they, they had a, a sort of a pathway to do it, different types of technologies, different approaches they were going to take. And what struck me about yesterday's uh, investor call is I wonder if they're still committed to that because the I checked out their investor presentation. It's still in there. I checked out their sustainability report, their climate report, which came out last month. It's still in there. But there's a little more breakdown, a little more detail uh, that we had and that I think is problematic. And I'll just quickly describe it and then we can talk about it, Max. So yeah, basic, sure. basically what they're saying is uh, out of that 10 megatons, four point, uh, sorry, 5.7 is going to come directly from their base operation. So that's those are scope one emissions. That means those are the emissions caused by the company's activities. And I'll give you uh, just a little breakdown here. 2.7 megatons from carbon capture and storage, 2.2 megatons from energy efficiency, and one megaton from, from fuel switching. And the fuel switching uh, industry folks will, will know that that comes from the base plant uh, going to cogen and, and, and no longer using uh, pet coke, which is uh, very carbon intensive uh, to generate power. But it, what, what really struck me here 
is that the rest of that 10 megatons a year is going to come from scope two emissions. And those that's their value chain, their customers or their supply chain, their suppliers. And I talked to uh, someone who's involved in, and again, this is sort of, you know, on background, so I can't, I can't say who it was, but somebody who's very, very uh, steeped in uh, GHG emissions methodologies. And it's a real question, uh, kind of a fluid issue about whether those types of scope two emissions should even be included, whether it should be Suncor that gets to claim them. And this is, I bring this up because the industry itself kind of plays footsie with this all the time. You know, they they kind of fudge numbers and they don't, you know, they'll say one thing in one report and another thing in another report. And it gives you the impression that they're doing something when in fact, they're really not doing that thing. And what's your take on that? Just, uh, you know, generally. Well, it's not surprising that, that they are trying to claim reductions that were, were done by other people or in other places. I mean, this is a recurring theme uh, right now in both the political end of this and the, and the industry end of it, which is they are constantly looking for reasons not to do the work, right? So you look at the the obsession with LNG exports and, and how Canada should get credit for those emissions reductions that happen in China or Japan or India. That's not how it works. That's just simply not how the accounting system works. Um, you know, we could we could obviously do a whole podcast about that, but but this is a recurring theme. The energy right now, the effort, the intensity of of their curiosity is almost always directed at how can we get credit for the work that we're already doing or how can we get credit for someone else's work rather than how can we solve these problems? How can we apply our thinking and our, our resourcefulness to actually reducing the emissions in our own backyard? And it's one of many frustrations I have uh, with this conversation and with what I think is the level of seriousness uh, that, it, that these companies are bringing to the table. You know, one comment about how this looks from an international perspective. It's interesting. It's interesting. You know, I think Suncor's board of directors on some level drew a rational conclusion because they looked at what happened with BP. You know, BP made some very big promises around not just reducing emissions, but reducing production by the end of the decade. Um, and, you know, we're kind of cheered on by some, some folks in the climate community and, uh, less so by you know the, the oil and gas industry crowd and, and their stock did not do well it underperformed its peers they shifted their strategy um they actually the way that they reduced their production is they just sold a big chunk of production to a different oil company and said look we're not producing as many barrels problem solved even though of course those barrels are still being produced on someone else's balance sheet um and lo and behold their stock rallied um and, and i think the lesson that the board of directors at Suncor learned, and, and you know, Suncor's stock has been a consistent underperformer in recent years compared to CNRL, compared to Synovus, is that investors don't actually care about this issue. They say they care. They say that they want you to do X, Y, and Z, but when it comes to which company they reward with a higher multiple, it's not the one doing the most on climate. And you know, to some to some extent, that is the fault of the investment community. That is the the you know that is the fault of institutional investors and shareholders for not putting a premium on a company like Suncor that actually takes this stuff seriously. Um, but you know, by the same token, and this is something I got to in my column, you know, you could very easily argue that most of Suncor's seriousness was talk. 
it wasn't action, right? You know, they they had a good, they had a better plan. They had more serious commitments put down in writing. But in terms of actually doing stuff, it was still pretty thin gruel. And, and maybe what investors are really waiting for to reward that that premium multiple is a company that actually does stuff. Let's talk about that. Um, I've, I've written a couple of columns recently in which I referred to the uh, the um, uh, I've written a hang on a second here. I'm going to have to edit this out as well. Um, got it. I've written a couple of columns recently about what I call the disruption dilemma. So if your business model is being disrupted by new new technologies, your your markets are being disrupted and and you you're faced with an existential threat to the ongoing, you know, existence of your business, then you have a couple of options. And one of them is to pivot to something, uh, pivot to a, a different or, you know, somewhat related business model. And I'll use autos, uh, automobiles as an example. So Tesla comes along in, in a big way. And then of course the Chinese uh, EV manufacturers come right behind it and they're disrupting the global auto industry. Well, so if you're GM or Ford, you can look at that and go, okay, hang on a second. They're still making cars and trucks. It may be with a different power plant instead of an internal combustion engine. Now we're going to use an electric motor, but hey, it's that we're in that business and we can figure that out and we can make that pivot. If you're in the oil sands business, what's your pivot? You know, you really don't have a pivot. And so the, the, the that's the dilemma. If you don't have a pivot, what do you do? And the oil sands companies have responded by saying, okay, well, then we're just going to get better at the, at the, business, you know, our core business, which is producing oil and gas, we're going to lower, lower our costs, we're going to return more uh, uh, cash back to shareholders in the form of higher dividends and, and share buybacks. And we're just going to get better and hope that we can ride this out. And it's going to be a slow transition and we'll be okay for decades and, and decades. And Suncor really stood out as a company that had a little bit different strategy. And, and Really, we have to be careful here because the strategy wasn't radically different. It wasn't like a Shell uh, or some of the other the, the European majors. Uh, but but Suncor did invest in some startups. And that's one of the strategies is you say, well, okay, we're not going to develop new to low carbon business models inside our, our corporate structure, but we'll invest in, in innovative startups. And, you know, maybe down the road, if they if they prove out, we might buy them, absorb them, you know, into into uh, our operations. And there are a couple here that I think are uh, deserving of mention. Uh, one is Enerchem, uh, which uh, based out of uh, Quebec, which has uh, got the the plant in Edmonton, where at the landfill where they, you know, I think they turn 90% of whatever comes in the landfill into, into renewable fuels and electricity and so on. They've got LanzaJet, which is, I've interviewed uh, LanzaJet a couple of times, and they've got this really cool technology. It uses a, a fancy a microbe that they've engineered, and they can take uh, carbon, uh, renewable electricity, and they can, and they, and they can turn it into renewable, uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And they've already got a pilot plant they're working on in, in Sweden. And then they've got another company called Svante, which is into the carbon capture CCUS space. So Suncor alone amongst the oil sands companies at least gave this a try. Um, what do you think, the given this, now that they're going to shift their 
their attention away from the en energy transition work. And my, may I, I should add that part of what they did in supporting these startups was provide operational support. That means, you know, like a dozen or a couple dozen engineers from Suncor would be helping these companies. And I can see where Kruger is sitting there going, hey, hang on a second. If I had, you know, an extra 50 engineers that I could put back into, uh, you know, um, being a better producer of oil sands, that's better for my, for my operations. Makes us more efficient, makes, it'll help us do, the, you know, better returns. So do you think that they're going to get out of these companies or maybe the strategy will be just to, you know, keep bumbling along with what they've got and just not add any more? I, I really think that they, at least as long as Rich Kruger is CEO and, and, you know, I don't know how long that's going to be, but I think as long as that's the case, they, they will focus very relentlessly on just the core business and driving down the costs associated with that core business. And, you know, these sort of diversifying investments to someone like Rich Kruger, I think, do not look attractive. Th those are not ways to reduce your costs. Those are actually, you know, those are investments that may not pay out for a long, long time. Um, and I think those are probably all going to get stripped away or, or, you know, stripped away as much as possible. Um, you know, it's interesting around the, the, the dilemma of where do they pivot to. That's definitely true if you're, you know, an oil company in Texas, right? Like, you can't pivot to much other than oil, although there's some interesting, there was a big geothermal uh, breakthrough recently in Texas and, you know, drilling technology, getting energy out of the earth, there is a lot of crossover there. But the oil sands companies are kind of unique globally in that they do have a pivot available to them, which is taking bitumen and not combusting it, but putting it to better and higher purposes. And you and I have talked about this in the past, and this has always sort of been this kind of boutique thing that, you know, Albert Innovates talks about, you know, there's all billions of dollars of upside here. Um, and that is available to them. You know, even the premier, uh, who I disagree with on this file about so, so, so many things, you know, has taken to talking about the, the, the ongoing demand for asphalt. You know, even if we um, completely decarbonize the, the, the transportation sector, everyone's driving an electric vehicle, they're not going to be driving on sand, right? We need roads. And guess what? Bitumen is, is very, very good at uh, being a source material for, for building all those new roads we need. So unique among the, the global oil and gas industry, Alberta's oil sands companies have a bit more of a runway to make that transition. And, and maybe the business isn't quite as big as it, as, it, as it is today or as it was recently, but it still can be pretty darn big um, if they put their mind to it. But I think sometimes we, and certainly economists, focus a lot on sort of rational behavior of companies and, and, you know, markets and things like that. And we forget that these companies are, are staffed and run by human beings. And I don't think we pay quite enough attention to the human element here. And to me, the human element is these companies are all run at the management level by people who are going to retire before this stuff really, really kicks in, right? They're rich Kruger will not, not be the CEO of Suncor seven years from now. Um, the senior vice presidents will probably have retired within a decade or 15 years. These are not people who will be working at Suncor in 2050 when it theoretically hits net zero. And so they're just not invested in, the, in that work. They want to, they've, they've come up through the organization. They've been very successful in their lives doing a certain thing, which is running an oil company. They don't want to have to learn how to do a different thing or a new thing. Uh, they want to keep doing the thing they've always been doing. And so Whenever there's an opportunity to kind of go back to the core business, go back to business as usual, they're going to jump at it. 
right? They will, they will cautiously tiptoe towards change, but they will run uh, happily towards business as usual. And I think that is sort of the element that everyone is kind of not putting enough light on. Um, you know, my conclusion in my column, and, and it's one I, you know, I think I've, I feel more strongly about now than ever, is that these voluntary targets are, are, are not only inadequate, but they're a distraction, right? It's great that companies are committing to net zero. It's great that companies are putting plans down on paper for things that'll happen 30 years from now. Um, but that's, that's not even close to good enough. Uh, and the provincial government clearly will not do anything about this because they're equally bought in on the idea that, well, we'll do all the heavy lifting from 2040 to 2050 when the technology magically sort of presents itself that everything will be easy to do. Uh, you know, this is, this is yet another case of Alberta screwing over future generations of, of putting a heavier load on their shoulders. Um, and I think the feds have to come in and, and, you know, they've talked about the oil sands emissions cap. They've, they've kind of danced around it. They have to do it. They have to put in regulations that force these companies to do the things they don't want to do. Because if we, we expect them to do them on their own, I think we're seeing right now, it's just not going to happen. The uh, aforementioned uh, GHG emissions specialist that I referred to uh, also talked about how uh, the global oil markets are working feverishly to figure out how to price emissions so that oil, crude oil with low emissions intensity will be sold for a premium. And those that have high emissions intensity, like heavy, sour, crude, from the Alberta oil sands will be penalized. So on the one hand, there's also, I mean, there's the, the climate, I'm with you on the climate climate argument and the need for uh, emissions uh, and an emissions cap, but we're talking about self-interest here and that, and it would seem to me that being carbon competitive, which they talked about, you know, five years ago, six years ago, is now slowly coming into focus. And it doesn't appear that they're paying any attention to that at all. And I think that's a, a major problem. And, you know, they're also working on the assumption that Biden probably, you know, won't be around that much longer and we won't see the carbon border adjustment uh, tax that he and, and Canada have been talking about ever come to fruition. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think that, uh, in fact, this analyst I was talking to uh, is anticipating that there will be in the not too distant future uh, there will be some kind of a carbon border adjustment. So even their own self-interest in the medium term, the short to medium term, they seem to be ignoring. I'm not sh Yes. Okay. Fair. I, I think we, we, as, as a species, and maybe this is just sort of an evolutionary thing, we massively overweight near-term interests over even medium-term interests. Um, you know, that thing about, I gladly, what is it? I gladly trade a hamburger tomorrow for a hamburger today, whatever it is. We trade 10 hamburgers tomorrow for a hamburger today. That's just the way we're wired as a species. And so I think that is sort of what's happening here. Um, you know, the, the, the political stuff to me feels like another free lunch that the industry is trying to, to put on its plate, which is, you know, if we wait until 2025, yeah, Trump's probably going to get in because Biden's old and he's decrepit and, and you know, Trump won't be so bad. And Polyev will probably get in and he'll make the carbon tax go away. And so, you know, this stuff, if we just can like rag the puck for another two solid years, then 
a new government will will lift uh, you know this weight from our shoulders. And of course, this is the same thing they were telling themselves in 2021, in 2019. They've been telling themselves this ever since Trudeau was elected, uh, um, that that relief is just around the corner. Um, yeah, you would hope that that they would take the issue of carbon competitiveness a little more seriously. But I'm sort of reminded of that Im that image of of Wiley Coyote when he steps over the cliff, right? He doesn't drop immediately, right? He he's he's still suspended in the air, even though there's nothing but but air beneath him. And that sort of feels like we're at right where we're at right now. You know, I was reading something before we before we came on here about I think it was Standard Chartered or, or one of the banks saying that oil's going to hit $100 a barrel this year on record demand. And I do hear a lot of oil and gas enthusiasts in my Twitter mentions. No, I'm not calling it X. Um, sort of saying, oh, you know, where's this where's this peak demand going to come? It still hasn't arrived, you know, or demand's still going up. And it's like, yes, no, no one said that demand was going to peak in 2023. You know, we've all been pretty clear, you and I, you know, uh, the IEA, various economists that like the, the global peak will come aggressively towards the end of this decade for a while. Um, it may be the early 2030s, but when it comes, by that point, if you if they haven't prepared, if they haven't made the, the necessary investments, if they haven't been building you know, the, the new business that they're gonna have that will take them over the next generation, they're hooped, right? There, there's, there's nothing that they could do if you know, they decided in 2030, oh, we gotta get serious now because demand is rolling over to actually fix the problem because by that point prices will start cratering um almost certainly i mean maybe opec cuts so heavily that it doesn't crater but you know by that point they just will not have the time and the resources they need to execute that amount of a of a pivot you know it's like it's the titanic you have to start turning it very very early if you're going to miss that iceberg um i want to talk about the the perception within the Calgary Petroleum Club, within the C-suites in downtown Calgary about the energy transition. Because there are, for sake of argument here, two fundamental models. You get slow transition, long, tra uh, fast transition. And on the slow transition side, uh, suddenly Vaclav Smil, you know, University of Manitoba professor, dean of energy transition scholarship, has emerged as like the patron saint. Everybody's got Vaclav Smil on their lips. Um, I had an email from one of Smith's advisors who, who helped draft the, the uh, what do they call it, emission reduction and energy development plan that she launched before the, the election. And I'm sure it, it, it popped in my inbox at about 10.30 my time, 11.30 Calgary time. I'm sure it was like a drunk email uh, <laughs> because it was it was incoherent and it mentioned Schmiel a bunch of times, you know, suggesting that perhaps I did wasn't aware that uh, Vaclav Schmiel actually existed. And so the problem there is, and, and, and Schmiel is right, energy transitions take a long time. The error that the Calgary-based uh, oil and gas crowd make is to think is thinking that this energy transition only started a few years ago, started in 2020 or 2015 or whenever they think it started. Whereas in fact, I've got an, a revised S-curve now. And if you, if you go back to the key technologies in this transition, solar panels, 1970s, wind turbines, like commercial wind turbines, 1980s, lithium ion battery, early 1990s, first uh, commercial uh, pro EV prototypes, uh, late 1990s, 
all of this technology has that's transforming the global energy system now has its roots. It's like 50 years old, 40 years old, 30 years old. And now it's hitting the inflection point. And now they're only now they're just starting to pay attention. And this is why Wood McKenzie last year, they sent a, a press release out that I thought was really prescient. What they said was probably because of underinvestment in oil and gas uh, E&P, exploration and production, uh, we're going to see uh, tight supply and pretty high prices between 80 and $100. Uh, oil companies are going to have a lot of money. A lot of you know their, their uh, bank accounts are going to be flush with cash. And what they should do is they should be looking now to invest some of that cash in strengthening their balance sheet, but more importantly, finding other business models, finding related business models, finding new business models, but finding some kind of low carbon business model. And I thought out of all the Canadian oil and gas companies, Suncor had the best shot at that. And I think Kruger has basically blown up that assumption. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that was certainly the perception in Calgary. I mean, it's funny; it was almost wielded like a, like a insult, right? That Suncor was was the one that was most attuned to the the realities of the the energy transition. Um, you know, I think there was a view that it was sort of infected by by the seed of Petro Canada, right? That it had this sort of public. Uh, uh, legacy in it and and that was sort of why it it wasn't just out there like cnrl to make money cut costs and and you know be ruthless um but as you say i think i think when the board you know andrew leach uh university of alberta economist and twitter uh impresario uh andrew leach uh my column came out today and he gently pointed out that suncor waved the white flag in April when they decided to pick Kruger as the CEO. And I, I think he's right. Like that when the board made that choice, that was, that was them putting an end to whatever, uh, you know, the company had decided had been trying to flirt with in the years before that, you know, in the, in the period between uh, Steve Williams and Rich Kruger. And, you know, it's a shame um, because I think that in a, in a sense would have put them in a good position long-term, you know, uh, I think Synovus, ironically, is now the company that is best positioned here. Uh, it still has a—I don't—I don't, I don't want to say her name because it'll put her on put her in trouble. But like, it has a uh, you know uh, chief sustainability officer. I think it it has a legacy of caring about these things a little bit, uh, and certainly having a view of things that is slightly more constructive than perhaps other companies. You know, former CEO Alex Porbey is now over at Pathways, uh, sort of trying to spread the message there. So, you know, maybe they'll pick up the baton that Suncor is very clearly putting down here. Um, but, you know, again, I think I think these companies respond to incentives, both, both regulatory and human. And I think it's up to the federal government to make sure that it has the right incentives in place for them. Because, you know, as I said, they're not going to do it on their own. On that note, um... I remember, and you were talking about Synovus, and I was interviewing back in like 2016, 2017, I was interviewing uh, their uh, VP of technology, Harbir China, uh, who mm -hmm. had helped develop the steam-assisted gravity drainage uh, technology that made in situ production possible. And he was working on uh, technology, solvent substitution. So 
most of the uh, oil sands, uh, most of the emissions created in the oil sands production process are burning natural gas to create steam, and then steam is used to to uh, uh, make the bitumen thin out the bitumen so that it'll flow, uh, or in the in the mining case of mining, uh, to uh, in their uh, in the plant in the processing plant. Uh, so you, you, it's all this steam that is is the is the problem. And so one of the things they did was they said, well, look, instead of using steam, what if instead of melting it, what if we dissolved it using solvent, like a light hydrocarbon? And so they've been working on this now. I probably the better part of a decade the industry has been working on it. So I'm looking at a Suncor's 2023 climate report, and I'm and they've got a, a little chart here that talks about the different types of uh, of technologies that they're working on. So where is solvent-aided extraction? So solvent-aided would be solvent and steam, and solvent-dominated would be all solvent, no steam. So solvent-aided extraction is in the four to six, four to six more years of development. Basically, it's uh, in a pilot or demonstration phase, and the solvent-dominated uh, extraction is seven to 10 years away. And I, I, I bring this up because I wrote a column, uh, you know, not that long ago where the oil sands companies were whining about, you know, federal government being slow with carbon capture and storage. They said, you've had these technologies for years now. You've been working on them. You put millions and millions of dollars into the develop, developing them, and you haven't deployed them at scale. You just haven't put in the 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 capital that's required and the efforts required, and you haven't prioritized it right in the C-suite to get these out into the field and deploy them at scale so that you, you know, these can be done. And even now, even with all the pressure that they're under, there's still look at the timelines we're talking about, you know, four to six years, seven to ten years. I mean, if other industries can develop this technology, develop technologies and deploy them within, you know, a matter of several years, say two to five years. And they, these guys take technology that's been around, they've been working on for a decade and they want another decade. And I think somebody needs to light a fire under these guys. And, and, you know, I did an interview with Kevin Byrne from S&P Global uh, a couple of years ago. And he said, look, you know, this is a big industrial process and things don't happen quickly and you have to understand that it you know it there's a lot of engineering and a lot of caution that goes into this okay i get that but this is not business as usual and that's what these guys don't seem to understand is that given the exigency of the energy transition coupled with the climate crisis and increase increasing stringency of climate policy, it's not business as usual. And they just don't seem to grasp that fundamental fact. Absolutely not. They, they think that the biggest threat to their business is the federal government, Justin Trudeau, and climate policy. They are convinced of it, right? And if, if that threat disappears, uh, it's, you know, it's clear sailing for the rest of their careers. A very clearly isn't if you look at what's happening around the world if you look at the pace of renewable technology development and deployment even in places like especially in places like china um but but being in a bubble they don't hear from people who disagree with them very often and, and you know to the technology adoption piece you know it's funny I, whenever i would talk with people involved in developing new technologies when i was the editor of alberta oil the, the same joke would always come up it was almost like it was a talking point you know, they say, well, you never want to be first in this industry. You always want to be second, right? And that was that was the 
the thing. No one wanted to stick their no none of these companies wanted to stick their neck out and try something that didn't work. But once it worked, they'd all do it. Um, you know, they would all follow in behind once it had been proven out. But <laughs> you know, can I, can to some I jump, extent, can I jump yeah, in yeah. here, Max? Because I actually have yeah. a story. So from okay. 2003 to 2008, I, I actually worked in the industry and I worked for a company called Endurance Technologies out of Calgary. And I worked in Texas and California and Wyoming and Calgary and on and on and on. So these guys had an innovative downhole product. doesn't matter what it was. And I, my job was to help set up distribution networks uh, for this, like speed up technology adoption is what my, my, my job essentially was. And I, I sat across from hundreds of oil and gas engineers and I can and if and ninety eight percent of those engineers would say, "Has somebody else done it first? Who's got experience?" You know, no, you're absolutely correct. Nobody wants to be first. Nobody wants to to take a chance on innovative technology and have it fail because, frankly, it comes out of their bonuses. Their bonuses are tied are tied to this. Uh, it looks it looks bad uh, to senior management, and so everybody slow walks, uh, new technologies until they're absolutely certain. And I get it. It's it's costly if you break something, right? In this business, if you get it wrong and you break something, it costs a lot of money. Nobody's really very happy with you. But nevertheless, when the pressure is on, you, you know, it's time to, to change up the, the approach a little bit. Anyway, that's that's my story for what it's worth. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there are you know, thousands of stories like that among people who have tried to bring new technology forward to this industry. It It's conservative, obviously, politically, but it's also sort of constitutionally conservative. Like, they, they simply do not want to take any risks. And, you know, part of that is, I think, the, the Canadian entrepreneur's mindset. You know, I've uh, it's been, I think it's been well documented, and certainly I've, I've spoken to enough American entrepreneurs to know that we just aren't as comfortable taking risks as Americans are. We we like to play it safe. And maybe that's because we're, you know, in this cold country, it, you know, it didn't play well to take big risks back when we sort of came here and, and you know, we're subsistence farming or whatever it might have been. But that is part of us, that 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 cautiousness. And it's not helping here. Um, you know, we need a little bit more of the wildcatter spirit, I think, of, of people who are willing to kind of roll the dice a little more. But also it suits them to not go quickly here. It suits them to not push forward with this stuff because then they can they can tell the federal government, your your expectations are unreasonable. We can't move that fast because <laughs> they haven't moved at all. In the, you know, and it, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just right. so and, frustrating. And not only that, they can tell the federal government, hey, we need $50 billion to pay for our carbon capture and storage. Uh, you know, efforts. Oh, exactly. and, by the, and by the way, that's the, the Pathways Alliance estimates that decarbonizing the oil sands by 2050 will take 75 billion, and they've asked the federal government for 50 billion. So this yep. is the this is the industry's approach. Well, you know, we're not going to do it. We're not going to spend money on. Oh, by the way, I want to. I did. Can uh, I just make? Can I? Can I just make a point quickly? Absolutely. So far, their strategy is working. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, like I, I think longer term, uh, it is not going to go well. But from a deeply, purely cynical perspective, uh, so far they're getting most of the things they want. Right? They have a pipeline that the Fed's paid for. Um, the Feds have stepped up and and put a bunch of tax credits in for carbon capture. They may, I hope they don't, but they might pony up some more money 
and, and no one's really holding their feet to the fire. They're all getting their bonuses. Their shares are, you know, their 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 stock options are all vesting. Uh, they all have their, you know, their second places in Kelowna or wherever it might be. Like, there's no reason for them from a purely self-interested perspective to do anything differently until someone makes them do something differently here. Yes, I, I would agree. And um, I want to make a point, and this came out while I was writing part two of the unethical oil series. And it was about conventional oil and gas, but uh, I, I interviewed uh, Dan Wicklum, Dr. Dan Wicklum, who was the head of COSIA, Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance for seven and a half years. And what he said, and this was uh, corroborated by other interviews I did, uh, but he was dealing directly with the oil sands. So I'll, I'll quote Dan. He said, he was told by the CEOs, vice presidents and so on, that when they out, when an oil sands company allocates capital to projects, you know, and they're all competing around the board table when budget, uh, you know, time of year comes up, is they they're not going to allocate uh, capital unless there's a positive return on it. Well, if you're lowering emissions or you're reclaiming uh, environmental liabilities, it, it's a cost to you. It's not a positive return. It's a it's a ne negative uh, return. And so that's why very often, that's one of the reasons why uh, the oil and gas industry in Alberta has been, had such a poor track record when it comes to reclaiming wells, uh, conventional wells, uh, putting uh, security aside to eventually reclaim uh, oil sands tailing spawns, that kind of thing, it is because it's the way they, they, want, they will only uh, address and spend money on their environmental liabilities like emissions, uh, when they can make money at it. If you can't make money at it, then they won't do it. And Suncor is a great example. So when it spends a billion plus to uh, redo its base plant uh, and, and switch it over to Cogen from Petcoke, that actually increases the efficiency of the and lowers the cost per barrel that they're going to produce. From their point of view, that's what they want. They want a win-win where I, I, I fix an emissions problem and I also reduce my costs at the same time. I increase my operating efficiency. Well, how many opportunities like that do you think there are? Not that many. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where the carbon price is really supposed to come in. And, and maybe part of the issue is that, you know, due to the, uh, you know, the large industrial uh, pricing system, which doesn't actually levy the full price of the carbon tax on oil companies, not even close to the full price, it hasn't motivated changes in their behavior uh, that that may come in time when, you know, the carbon tax makes business as usual less profitable than investing in in emissions reducing technology, um, you know, and maybe that's a system design that that we didn't really think entirely through uh, or through as well as we probably should have. But you're right. I mean, they they look at it purely in terms of what will deliver returns in the near term. You know, what will what will look good on my sort of profile as an employee, as someone, as a manager, whatever it might be. And, and investing in something that won't pay out for 10 years is not generally, uh, unless it's an oil sands mine, they seem fine with that. But anything else is, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. I'm reminded of there's, there's a story going around that Ford is losing $35,000. I don't know what the exact figure is, but it's big on every EV it's sold in the last quarter. And th this is, of course, because they're basically amortizing the investments that Ford is making and retooling its factories over a very small number of cars that are being sold makes the figure look worse than it is. 
and you see conservatives sharing this going, oh, you know, EVs are never going to be profitable. But Ford is doing the right thing there. They are making a, an investment in the next phase of their business, and it will cost them money right now. But Ford has said, you know, within we expect within three or four years that that will be profitable, um, that, that this will start to pay out. The oil industry doesn't understand how to do that. It only understands how to invest in productive capacity that then pays out, you know, on a basis that they've, they understand and have done for, you know, for years and years and years. Um, investing in something whose returns are uncertain. Um, yeah, they're just, they're not comfortable with that. And it shows. Let's, I, I, we'll wrap up this conversation with one final point, Max. And th that is uh, on, we've talked a little bit about carbon fiber. Okay. So the Alberta Innovates is in the midst of, well, coming up to phase three uh, in the final phase of the grand uh, carbon fiber grand challenge. And out of that, uh, Alberta Innovates expects that there will be created a commercial process for turning bitumen into a carbon fiber precursor, which then gets used by manufacturers to manufacture carbon carbon fiber. And and price will be about 50% of what it is now. And it's it's uh, if they can make this work, it's a, an amazing thing. And we're big supporters of it here at Energy Media. The point here is that in Suncor's 2023 sustainability uh, climate report, one of the uh, early, it comes under, it's on page 10, you can see it, but the one of their options uh, for lowering emissions is expand low emissions businesses. And what is there? Alternative projects like carbon fiber. Now, here's why I bring this up. Getting, and I want to refer back to Mark Little's 2020 op-ed where he said the oil sands could fund energy transition work. When the UCP came into power in 2019, one of the things they did was cut uh, Alberta Innovate's budget from $190 million a year to $150 million a year. This would be a perfect place for the a company like Suncor to come in and backfill that budget and maybe even ex help expand that budget. And here's the reason why this is important. I interviewed Dr. Uh, Paulo Bomben, who's leading this uh, for Alberta Innovates. And he said, right now, Alberta leads the world in this research. And but he said, but we're going to be attracting the attention of big pocketed, deep pocketed competitors like the United States or Saudi Arabia. And they can come along and throw hundreds of millions of dollars uh, at it. And they can overtake us fairly quickly if we don't keep up the momentum and continuing to invest in this. So here's a company that has a identifies this as a potential low carbon business model that it could be part of or support in the in not too distant future. Knows what's going on is it, because they they're one of the supporters of of this uh, challenge. Understands that money needs to go in here, and hasn't. And I, I think this is this is just such a you know it appears minor and small, but it's it's symbolic of the failures of vision and failures of will that are being made by the industry. There are opportunities. All you need to do is take a small risk, and they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that, but they also don't want to explain why they would do that, right? You know, I think one of the failures. I mean, obviously publishing articles in corporate nights is good, but I don't think the Mark Littles of Suncor fought hard enough or loudly enough for the vision that they had for their company and for the future that they were trying to participate in and the opportunities that they saw there. Um, I mean, you look at, 
what just happened uh, with carbon engineering uh, in BC. Uh, this ironically is a firm that had early investment from Murray Edwards. Uh, Murray, his company may be miserly when it comes to these things, but I think on a personal level, he knows a good investment when he sees it. It just got bought for $1.1 billion by Occidental Petroleum. So here's this like very cool company. It had Bill Gates as an early investor. It takes, uh, you know, takes CO2 straight out of the air and sequesters it. This is a this is an area where Suncor could have been a leader, where they could have certainly they have knowledge, they have reservoirs, they have all the things that are needed to make this happen. And instead, it gets bought out from underneath them by an American company for 1.1 billion dollars. That that sort of tells the tale of of the lack of commitment to the kinds of risks that we need to be taking if we're going to get this stuff right and and the involvement of companies like Suncor and I honestly think that they are they are happy to let this stuff pass them by and continue with their sort of you know the the business that they have maybe it won't change the world but they'll still be able to clip their coupon and and pay their dividend and reward their shareholders and come what may and it's disappointing the lack of of vision and ambition you know we talk in this province in Alberta a lot about you know, we're the best in the world. We have the most ethical oil industry. We have this, you know, we took the we took the tar out of the sands and we can take the carbon out of the barrel, but there's no follow through. There's no, there's no, there's no actual commitment of money or personal political capital to making that happen. Um, and until there is, nothing's going to change. Alberta, long on narrative, short on action. She's been saying it for Pretty a while much. and... And, and it is, it, you know, when we were saying this five years ago, you and I, Max, uh, you know, at that point, we were talking about the energy transition being like an early 2030s, early 2035, before we started to see the inflection point on to new technologies like electric vehicles and batteries. And lo and behold, uh, we saw those inflection points. The, the transition sped up to such an extent that the inflection points were reached a decade or more ahead of time. You know, we're talking about EVs were, you know, like 2021 and, and everything, it seems like these guys, uh, you know, are basically have not got the memo on that. And they still are thinking the way, uh, you know, they're, they're thinking about the energy transition is five years out of date, 10 years out of date in some cases. And they're thinking just as they're thinking about climate change and climate policy is, uh, is behind the times. And it's not just them, unfortunately. I mean, it, it is oil and gas CEOs and it's policymakers and it's politicians. And, you know, uh, I'll take an opportunity here to criticize uh, Rachel Notley in the NDP. You know, I mean, her, she went from being a climate policy leader in 2015 when the climate leadership plan was introduced. And today, you know, the NDP's uh, policies are a mere shadow of the UCP. You know, she she's succumbed to this pressure to. So it's it's not just the companies. It's a broader problem within the within the province, one that you and I run up against all the time. I really appreciate you coming here to talk about it. And um, hopefully we'll get you back. Uh, it won't be as long as it was since our last interview. So thank you very much for this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We'll have to talk about pathways next time. <laughs> I look forward to it.